Hey, welcome back, everybody. Today, we really kind of, um, I, I, in some ways, cracked the surface of Exodus. We looked yesterday at the introductory verses, uh, the bridge that really stands between Genesis and Exodus. Today, I think we get really into the heart of the book, and we get there immediately. I'm just going to read here one verse. Uh, this is verse 8. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And let's stop there. Uh, were we so inclined, we could probably do an entire day on this verse. I don't know that we will, but I think you easily could. This is one of those things that you read as information and maybe aren't uh, aware of how much theology is in it. So a new king arose over Egypt. We understand that. We were told yesterday generations have passed. But this next line, who did not know Joseph, this is one of those biblical texts that is exceedingly deep. The word know here is yada. You may know the expression yada, yada, yada. That's a sort of play on this word. But it's connected to themes of remember and forget. It's the word in Genesis that we saw over and over again when it told us that someone knew their wife. It is that sense of not just knowledge, but of intimacy, of understanding, of honoring. Um, and so when it tells us that they, he didn't know Joseph, the new king didn't know Joseph, it's really telling us that, that he's, he's forgotten the status of the Israelites. He's, he's now forgotten the role that they played. He, he is, we haven't used covenant language yet, but essentially he's no longer aware of their part of this covenantal type relationship. And, um, Michael, I just think, I don't want to, I don't want to beat this into the ground, but th- this is, I, I don't think you can understand Exodus in some of the ways of the themes that come later if you don't start by really mining this verse a little bit. Yeah, there's not many places in Scripture. I'm not going to go so far as to say there are not, but there are not many places in Scripture like this where so much hinges, certainly on a sentence, on a very simple idea, because everything that has preceded this has been about God's faithfulness to bring this particular family up generation through generation and keep this promise. He began making to Abram and then ultimately Abraham that uh, from him would come this mighty nation. Now, Joseph was the ending word of Genesis. And here, this is the closing of that chapter. Genesis had its own kind of burying Joseph and it had its own kind of way of tying up that story. But now Exodus We had seven verses in which we laid out a very broad view of the story. I jumped back yesterday if you missed that study. And now here today, we hit the inflection point. This is where the entire story changes. New king. So we have a new actor on the scene. And this one didn't know Joseph. And and to your point, the, the word there, Clint, leaves enough open for interpretation that we could read that as simply unaware 
we could also understand that to mean that he doesn't care, that he has actively moved beyond the person and story and the providence that we saw in Joseph's life, the awareness of a God who was able to not only predict calamity, but ultimately to save an entire nation from it. This was the epitome of God's faithfulness in Joseph, right? And here, at this point in Exodus, we have been told clearly and succinctly that this Joseph is no longer known. And so therefore, the motivation of this new Pharaoh is going to be completely outside of the motivation of honor, respect, welcome, hospitality. The ways that we've seen Egypt treating the people will no longer be the case. This is the clean break moment. And Clint, to your point, this is where Exodus starts. Eight verses in, Exodus the very idea of needing to be led out or leading this story, uh, it begins at this crossroads because here the Pharaoh sets up the action that ultimately now uh, God once again is going to have to be faithful to the people because Pharaoh will not be faithful to the people. Right. And, and hanging throughout the rest of this book of Exodus are these themes, the, the tension between honoring and dishonoring, the tension between remembering and forgetting, keeping and breaking. These are the, these are the kind of pivotal moments that will define this book. And, and we see them introduced here with this idea. He, he didn't know. He didn't remember. Or if he did remember, he didn't honor. He didn't keep. And because he doesn't do that, he now looks at the people not as a sign of what God has done, not as a sign of partnership. He sees in them now a threat because he looks through the wrong lens, he sees the wrong thing. And so the next verse tells us, he said to the people, look, the Israelite people, and this literally says the sons of Israel, which as you know from Genesis was Jacob. The sons of Jacob are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So there's a lot going on here. We saw this in the opening verses, a statement of Israel's power. Um, we're going to have a, a depressing, a really a heartbreaking contrast to that probably early next week. Um, but here, it, they're, they're more numerous, they're more powerful, and that evokes fear. When you are not a trustful person, when you are the kind of person that doesn't know or honor, you assume that of others. So he assumes we have to deal shrewdly with them or they will be our enemy. They will fight against us. They will escape from the land. By the way, the land in which they're living and becoming numerous and profitable and multiplying. So um, once, once you see a person go down that path, they see everyone else on that path with them. And so he now looks at them with suspicion, and he calls others to do the same. So notice the promise kept in the naming of the people's increase, in the naming that they're numerous, even the statement that they're more powerful than we. Uh, this is a fulfillment of what God promised, that the people would grow, that they would be numerous, that they would continue to multiply. This is part of the promise made in the midst of the covenant. And here, that promise continues to remain in force. But what's striking here, and I just want to make sure we don't miss it, 
we saw an unbelievable, if not celebration, certainly recognition of shrewdness in the book of Genesis. And here we see that verse 10, let us here, Egypt, deal shrewdly with them. And isn't it interesting how with just an economy of words, we know what happened in Genesis. We know that especially Jacob was very shrewd in what he did. And in some ways, we saw that as being positive. In others, we saw it being negative. Always a mixed combination thereof. But here, that changes radically when that shrewdness is used as a weapon against the people. Here, it's very clear that the Pharaoh is setting out to do harm to the people, to enslave them, as we're going to see in just a moment. And, And it's because of the shrewdness of this Pharaoh that it's going to set up the need for God's repentance. So in the first case, we saw how shrewdness became a vessel for God's action, even despite strange human motives. Here, we see that once again, except in the hands of the other side, shrewdness will once again necessitate and require that same kind of action, that same kind of faithfulness of God because of humans trying to get the edge on the other. And we'll look specifically at their response tomorrow, but I I do want to say that this idea, again, I, I I don't want to overdo this, but this idea of remembering and forgetting, we're going to see this consistently in this book as the people struggle to remember the covenant. Remember that I am God. Remember the covenant. Remember that I swore to your ancestors. This remember language is vital to really, I think, understand and experience this book. And so as the Pharaoh doesn't remember, as he doesn't honor he now casts suspicion. He casts uh, mistreatment, misplanning. He now has in mind for the people a less than honorable goal. And the Pharaoh is going to work actively to bring that about, be, to control these people. He now wants to control a people who rightly belong to God. And that's all in the background yet. It's not really on front and center of the stage, but it is in the works. And I think as we see it, that's going to come to a head. Again, um, probably Monday, we're going to see the ultimate expression of that desire and that contest for who is going to speak with authority and mm, direction over the lives of the people of Israel. And the Pharaoh here wants it to be him. You know, Clint, Because we have some time from when we ended the Genesis story, I want to just make sure that we're all on the same page here. This is a radical change of the people's orientation to Egypt. And we said this in the Genesis study. We mentioned how you might be surprised how positive the biblical text is towards Egypt, but towards the Pharaoh, because our Sunday school training teaches us that Egypt is the place to get away from, right? Pharaoh is the one who's the enemy. We're going to see that play out. That's certainly in the text to the point you just make about seeing how there's a competition for whose word of authority is the last word, is the ultimate word. But note that there's something radical and transformational in this very moment. I don't want to overplay it, but just don't miss the very nation that had been this, the place of salvation for the people of Israel has now become 
their place of captivity. The, the ruler who once was the one who welcomed with hospitality now becomes a tyrant. The, the one who opened homes to these folks now will build walls around them so that they can't escape their homes. Th- this all happens in just this pivotal moment. And the biblical text in some ways just takes it for granted. It, it was good. And now in the economy of God's history of salvation, it, it is now a threat to the people that the people came for good reason, and now they find themselves trapped, and they find themselves subject to a ruler who makes a claim for authority that is over, making a claim for authority that's over God. And, and so, to whatever extent this happens in the Bible, and I do think it is unique in how substantial of a departure it is for how quickly it happens, I mean, it's worth noting that not only does this set up who will be the the villain, the the nemesis in the first, you know, at least quarter third of this book. Um, not only does it do that, but in, it initiates this story in which we are asked, "What is the full extent of the people's captivity?" And and that's a theme that's going to get carried throughout the rest of Exodus. What are what do they need to be carried out from? And of course, to start with, it's going to be from the the person who claims authority over the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And and ultimately, uh, there's more here than what you're going to see in nine verses, ten verses. There's far more here because it's about, it's going to come throughout the book, but it's worth slowing down and seeing it as we start here for all of the number of times that this is going to come back around. We cover a lot of ground here so that Exodus can really get to the point of the story. By the end of the first chapter, we're ready for all the rest of the story, and the author here does move quickly through it. But I also want to point out, and we can return to this tomorrow because I think we see another example of it. Uh, there are moments throughout the Old Testament where Israel does the right thing. There are moments where Israel's faithful. There's moments of rededication. There are moments of kind of return to faithfulness. But this is, in some ways, though brief, the closest the Old Testament comes to showing us Israel as Israel was meant to be. They are strong. They are vital. They they stand up under oppression. Um, there is a celebration here of the hardiness of the people, the toughness the resilience of the people, I, I think, again, we'll see it more clearly tomorrow. But it is very short-lived. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, um, we are going to see them struggle with a call to be those people and a consistent inability to really achieve and stay there as those people. And so... Um, I, I think it helps. We all know the stories, so we all know the struggling Israel. We all know weak Israel. We all know Israel who gets it wrong often. But this this first part of Exodus does really ring the bell of Israel was hardy and they were fruitful and they they were strong and fierce and the kind of people that even Pharaohs looked nervously upon. And I don't think we I don't think we want to miss that because I think it it makes what happens next um, both more profound and it helps us understand it.
Maybe that's some of the mastery of this book too, Clint, is because it sets us up to think right here in verse 8 that the enemy is going to be Pharaoh. But what we know is to come, the question is going to remain, who's the enemy within the camp? The people become their own enemy. So in the moment of their strength here, in the moment of them looking uh, like the very people they were called to be, blessed by God, there's also, we know, behind the scenes of that, uh, a kind of seed which is going to lend them or is going to move them towards destruction. It's, it's going to destroy their relationships. It's going to destroy sometimes their faith. And that seed, if we're honest, has been carried all the way through Genesis because Genesis was unsparing in its portrait of the people in both their good and their bad, their doubt and their faith. And here, I, the people have that, though the text doesn't spend a lot of time uh, fleshing that out here, um, we're going to discover in the book and books, quite frankly, that follow it, that that is the case. So yeah, just another way to say the same. I, I, I think there's a lot here and it's worth noting that um, there are moments in the story, and this is a great example of it, where the people do represent what God calls them to be and, and that thanks be to God. Yeah, so we'll continue tomorrow. We'll, um, we'll see a little bit more of that and we'll get into, um, in some ways, the the deep part of the early part of the story as we continue through chapter one here. Uh, We're grateful that you spent some time with us and we'll see you tomorrow.